Hello, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Keith. By God's grace, Alcoholics Anonymous rooms full of people like you and little effort on my own. I haven't had to take a drink or do any drugs since May the 11th, 1976, and for that I'm especially grateful. It's a privilege. Uh, it's a privilege to be here and uh, and participate in your weekend, and uh, it's a special treat for me to uh, be able to spend time with people that I love and respect in Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, it's always a special privilege for Sue and I to be asked to participate on the program uh, together. Uh, we got sick together, and uh, and it's a a real treat to be able to uh, you know have our recovery that uh, complements each uh, each other's program. And you know, I, I I look out here this morning. I'll tell you, you folks get up this early and and come to the morning meeting. You're diehards. You're diehards. I can always tell the ones that didn't make it. They they come along about one o'clock this afternoon and say, "I missed the meeting, but I'll get your tape." <laughs> I said, yeah, you probably start in a big book on page 51, too. <laughs> they want to know about relationships, but they're in bed with somebody they didn't know. <laughs> I don't judge, I just report. <laughs> I, I love it here. I, I came a, a Wednesday night. And, uh, well, I got here early Thursday morning because I want to spend a little time with Jack Sullivan and, uh, and I love him and he's been an important part of my sobriety and, uh, he's helped me and, uh, and given me some functional guidance along the way. And, uh, he took me over to the Derby, uh, and, and took me through the stables and all the good stuff over there, you know, and, uh, and I, I was born in Texas. I, I, I grew up around horses and that kind of stuff and, uh, horse racing. And, uh, and I loved it. I loved it. I really identified with it. It's one of the places that <clears throat> I, I just had so much identity with the fact that when we were over there the other morning, well, I mean, the people, it was cold and damp and it was rainy out there and, and, uh, them trainers and, uh, and horse handlers were out there, uh, knee deep in mud and what have you, you know, and, uh, I mean, it, it's a lifestyle. I mean, it is truly a lifestyle. And, and, uh, they don't know what Bush is doing. This morning, they don't care, you know. <clears throat> uh, they don't care about the economy because they don't have a hell of a lot of money to worry about over there, most of them, you know. And, and if you want to talk about horses, they know something about horses, and they talk about horses. You can walk in any one of them places, they talk about Jack took me around, and they talk about horses, which is running, which ain't. You know, uh, it's, a, it's truly a lifestyle. It is a way of life. And it was so awesome to me to be right there in it. That it really, it really, I had a lot of identity with that because that's exactly the way I lived. I mean, I lived a lifestyle. Anything I ever did, if I thought it was worth doing, it's worth doing 110%. And, and I understand giving it your all. 110%. I mean, I lived, I lived 20, over 20 years in a life of crime, just like they do over there. I mean, I didn't know anything else was going on. And, uh, and because I'm an alcoholic, why periodically, why, I stepped outside that circle and embarrassed the people who, who were living that way of life. And, uh, and therefore I was not a good criminal. <laughs> I, I turned out to be a drunk, you know, and, uh, uh, you don't, they don't want you to embarrass them. It's alright to be a criminal, but don't embarrass me for God's sake. You know, I would, I would stand in jail and, and, uh, and feel comfortable. My wife would come in there to bail me out and look around and, uh, and the first time she did it, she looked around and saw people around there who were bailing these these other criminals out of you know getting them out of jail. And at first, you know that low bottom snobbery was she'd look down on those people. 
And then it became apparent to her she was there bailing me out just like the rest of them, you know. And then then it's no longer a big deal. And you just do the do the deal. And I live that way of life. I I understand that. And you know the amazing thing about that is is that the identity doesn't change. I'm, I lived before I came to this program. I lived like there was no tomorrow. That's the way I lived. I remember down in Texas, uh, you used to do 25 to life if you got busted with a, with a with a joint, you know, or a roach. I never got, you know, I never got that excited about marijuana because <clears throat> I don't want to do nothing that's going to lay me down. People do strange things to you when you're laying down. <laughs> There's a Dewey and a Dewar, and I know which one I want to be. <laughs> but I got excited about the fact that if you got busted with that down in Texas years ago, you did 25 to life. Man, I got off on that. Because I knew I wasn't going to live that long. <laughs> the joke's on them. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, my lifestyle today is I'm just, I'm just exactly that way about Alcoholics Anonymous. People say I'm a fanatic. A fanatic. All I, I mean, I, I don't know anything about anything else. I, when we went over there, I didn't know anything about what Jack was talking about all them horses. I mean, it, but I understood. That philosophy of life, and that's exactly the way I am about Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a fanatic. I'm obsessed with it. An obsession is an idea that overpowers all other ideas. All other ideas. And that's the way I am about Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, I ran out of running room, hit the wall, and boom, here I am. I don't know anything about anything else. I still have the same characteristics. I still have the same makeup. And it'll always be there, and probably... One of the reasons that I understand that is uh, I grew up in an alcoholic home, and that doesn't really mean anything to me other than that's just where I grew up. That's my ethnic background. I can't deny it. You know, I mean, I grew up with selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, insane, crazy people. <laughs> the amazing thing is I came to AA and you said, you're, you're home, man, and I sat down in a room full of selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, insane people. <laughs> I have a problem with that. If you can survive back there, man, you can make it here. It's my best asset. You know, and and I'll tell you what that means to me. I mean, my training it was very good, and it it's as close to me as the hair on the back of my neck this minute. And what that training was very simple. I'll give you a graphic example of that. Last Tuesday morning, I, I work. I got a job. <laughs> You're new. I hate to tell you that, but that's probably going to be the thing that's going to just block everything else. You won't hear another word I say. <laughs> But maybe you'll identify this. Tuesday morning, I woke up early, and I got up, and I like to read the newspapers, and uh, and I get to work early because I was taught to get to meetings early, get to work early, and I'm wandering around the house early, early in the morning, and I I want to get a paper. I don't have any change. I look over, and there's some meeting money over there. It was Al Anon, so it's okay. <laughs> I took a quarter out of that and didn't never even thought guilt never even crossed my mind. I I never thought I'd pay it back because I might, and then again I might not. But I knew they wouldn't miss it, you know. And after all, we're family. Just that quick. And I put the quarter in my pocket and I I ready, I go to work. I got there early, early. Sun ain't even come yet. And and in front of the door where I go into work, there's there's about six paper machines. And I went up to this First paper machine, there's a bunch of people standing out there getting different papers. The L.A. Times is down on this end, and they got another L.A. Times down on the other end. And uh, I put a quarter in the machine, and I went to open the door, and it didn't open. 
and I jingled it, and a washer fell out. And I thought, what kind of a creep would put a washer in a damn paper machine? So I rattled it again, and another washer fell out. And I said, well, I guess he didn't work the first time. He must have known that there was some machine around here that a washer will work in, because he tried it twice. And all this happened in a matter of seconds. And I rattled that door, and I got two washers and no paper. And I turned around, and down on the other end, there's the L.A. Times machine down there, and there's a nice-looking gentleman there with a tie on, probably a professional engineer. Somebody went to school and smart, all that stuff. I assessed him. Looked kind of weak to me. So I just went down. He's getting a paper out, and I stuck my hand over there and grabbed that door, and I said, can I get a paper out of this machine? And he looked at me with the dumbest look. I said, that other machine up there cheated me out of my quarter. Can I get a paper out here? And he started shoving that door closed. He said, buy your own paper. I said, wait a minute. You don't understand. That machine up there cheated me out of my quarter. It's the same paper. Let me get a paper out of here. And he starts shoving that door closed. And in a matter of seconds, I could have killed him. That man had no idea how close to dying he was. And it, it, it finally, it finally, you know, I became aware as my fingers were going closed in that door. He wasn't going to let me get a paper. And I knew the next move was to kill him. And since I need a job to stay sober and we're in the front of the building that I work in, I better not do it. And, and so I, you know, kind of calmed down. And for the next four hours, I thought, what kind of a creep would keep you from getting the paper you deserve? It was all his fault. It's his fault. I never once thought about the fact that I stole the quarter. I never thought about, you know, the consequences of... I beat a man to death with less anger than that. And less of a, of a justifiable cause. I beat a man to death because he embarrassed me publicly. One thing I don't like is public humiliation. And uh, and, and the anger rage inside of me comes up that quick. And and, and what was going on out there, there's people standing around there going to get a paper. And this guy was, was taking, you know, he was embarrassing me. He was making me out a thief. <laughs> you imagine that? <laughs> and he had no idea I stole that quarter. How did he know I stole that quarter? <laughs> now, I don't know if growing up in an alcoholic home had anything to do with that. And in the middle of while that was going on, I didn't think I'm acting this way because I grew up in an alcoholic home. But that thing, that justifying and that blame is there. It's as close behind me, and it was there from the very beginning. I grew up with that kind of attitude. I grew up with that kind of... You know, feelings about it. I grew up with the idea that it's your fault. I, I, I watched a, they have a lot of crime where I live, and I watched an interview the other day, and they interviewed a young man who killed a store clerk, 7-Eleven store clerk, and they asked him, said, why did you kill that clerk? And he said, uh, well, he wouldn't give me the money. You know, he wouldn't give me what's mine. And I, I understood that. It was it was his money he was working for, but he wouldn't give me the money because he wouldn't let me have the money. That's why, and I understood that. I understand that because whenever I whenever I look at things uh, prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, it's like looking through a straw. I mean, that's just the way I was. I, I intuitively was selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking, and that that is still there. My sponsor says, you know, the animal's in the cage, but the door ain't locked, and uh, and that is so true. And uh, and I don't know about you, but I that's why Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life for me. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life for me. That has never changed. 
It has never changed. And, uh, and I, I think that, I think that the beauty of it, the amazing, the spiritual part of it is, is that I used to act intuitively on those emotions. And as a result of this program and working the steps, there's some, uh, uh, power in my life that not only keeps me from drinking, but kept me from reacting to that physical violence that was inside of me at that moment. Uh, people ask me, what do you do with that anger? And I don't know. I, I have to pray to God to take care of it because in those kind of situations, I know how far it can go. If you're going to play in those kind of games, you got to know the goalpost. And I know the goalpost. I've played in the game. I know how far it'll go. I don't wonder about that. And, uh, you know, that's the amazing thing. That's as spiritual as I know. For some reason, I don't want to live that way anymore, and I don't have to. But there's certain things that I have to do in order to change. I heard it last night. I heard that lady last night, and I've known her for a while. I heard her say something very important. The same man will drink. And that's the whole deal. The same man will drink. It's just that close. Bam! Just that. It's an intuitive thought for my kind of an alcoholic. It's there. It'll always be there. I'm, I'm so grateful that I found a place to come where there's people who love me, who'll show me a way of life, be examples, and help me change because I'm afraid of change. Don't you understand? I, I, I don't want to change. Because of the fear. All my life I've been afraid. I was born afraid. I was born afraid. And fear is an amazing emotion, amazing feeling. It's a, it's a reaction. People have different reactions to it. Some people fear will demobilize them and they'll hunker down in the corner like an old mule. You can't budge them out with a stick of dynamite. They'll back in the corner and you can't wedge them out of there. And then there's people like me. And fear is an emotion for me. Fear usually comes out as anger, and the anger is to me is like driving a fast car. It's an energy, and it's adrenaline. It's a rush that I just blast through life, never looking back. And my my drug of choice in sobriety is adrenaline. I mean, I, I love it, and I accept it. I have an enthusiasm about sobriety and the enthusiasm about life that, that came and, and, and remains that way, and enthusiasm is, is God within if I can't be enthusiastic about life and can't be enthusiastic about this program, I won't stay here. I don't know that I can always be happy and I can always rejoice about what's going on. But inside of me, there's a desire to live a way of life that allows me to experience all the feelings, all the emotions, all of the what's going on around me that I get. I just get excited about it. And uh, it's always amazed me. I've come to accept that. There's people in this world, not necessarily just in Alcoholics Anonymous around. There's people who will wait for things to happen. There's people who will watch things happen. There's people who will make things happen. And I'm one of those people that makes things happen. I mean, I'll make something happen. I will not sit around and wait on something to happen. I like to make things happen. And, uh, you know, I made a lot of things happen along the way, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> Some of which I'm not so sure were a good idea. <laughs> but we did them anyway, you know. And I don't regret that because that, I'll guarantee you, if I were to die right now, bam, there would be a moment, I'm sure, that my God, because he's a loving God, would say to me, would you like to have a replay of your life? And I'm going to say, you bet. And I'll guarantee you, I'm going to be on extended play because I've been there and done it. I've enjoyed it. And the amazing thing that I've come to understand about this way of life is that those are reference points in my life. They're reference points that I draw from every waking moment. They're reference points that as I put my head on that pillow at night, I look back on my life. I've never forgotten from where I came. And thank God they ask us when we come here to these deals to share in a general way, in a general way, what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like today, in a general way. The amazing thing, you know, Mr. Sullivan and I were sitting the other day, last night, matter of fact, and, and uh, we're talking about the fact that from where the, the 
the past of, of uh, Sue and I and our family's life is so astonishing to come out of that that it's almost unbelievable. It, it is truly a miracle because it's absolutely in, uh, unbelievable to, to even imagine. People, Sue and I go and share around at these things and people come up and say, well, that's, you know, that sounds good, but I, you had to make some of that stuff up. You know, I mean, it just couldn't be that bizarre. I tell you, Sue and I were in the program over five years before we knew what bizarre was. So, I'd heard probably 200 fifth steps before I went home one day and told Sue, that was bizarre. <laughs> and the only reason I didn't do that is because it's physically impossible for me to do. <laughs> and uh, Let your mind run with that one. <laughs> And I believe that my willingness to work this program and the things that I have to do and find out about me is directly proportional to the pain that I went through prior to getting here. There's a driver, there's a push and shove in every situation. And, you know, I just run out of running room. I had no other place to go. I, I had been to Alcoholics Anonymous before, and uh, and I had gone beyond that. I, I think if you're a slipper, you'll identify with us. We, they say we cross over some invisible line into the throes of alcoholism, and our, we lose control of our drinking. And, uh, and I was sitting talking to a man the other day, and he was he was telling me how he, he'd been sober for a period of time, and and for some some special occasion came up, and he went by the liquor store. He just he looked up there, and they had some of them little cans of cocktails, and uh, he'd never had one of those, and he bought two of them, and went home in the morning, and uh, and he popped one, and he drank it, and uh, he was waiting for the the boom, and nothing happened, so he drank the, half of the other one, and he thought. The hell with this. And he set that can down. He'd thrown the other one in the trash. And he set that can down. And he said, I'll get me a jug. And he went and got him a jug. And his wife came home later that evening and saw that can sitting there and knew he was drinking again. And she was lady sober 16 years in the program. So when he walked in the next day or whatever, why she said, you've been drinking, have you? And he said, how'd she know that? She said, well, that can was sitting there on the table. He said, he did not remember leaving that can on. He could have dropped it right in the trash. And I said, that to me is the first step, because when I take that first drink, somewhere between that, the very first taste of that first drink, it sets off a phenomenon of craving that looks somewhere inside of me for some kind of emotion, a driving force inside of me, and if it don't come right away, I think, to heck with this, where's that fifth? And I understood, because when that guy drank half of that second can, he said, heck with this, where's that fifth? He just set that can down and left. Now that, to me, was the first step. Once I take that drink, and once I have that emotion inside of me, that physical craving coupled by the mental obsession, I thought about, where's that fifth? Nothing else matters. And God help you if you're in my way. God help you. I used to stand in my kitchen, look down the hallway, take a pull off a bottle of vodka, and look down the hallway, and a little nine-year-old girl stand down at the end of that hallway. She's looking at me, and I'm looking at her, and she didn't come down that hallway and say, Daddy, come play with me today, or take me to school. She's looking at me, and I'm taking a drink out of that bottle, and she's watching me because she knows several things, but two most important things. She knows one thing, if that stuff's working, I'm going to go one way. But if it don't work, I'm going another way. And all she wanted to know is which ways I was going so she'd get out of the way. Or maybe, I don't know, early, early one morning standing in that bathroom and I just got that stuff cooked up in a spoon, put it in a syringe, tied my arm off and looked in the mirror and I'm looking in the mirror because I'm the kind of alcoholic I'll reach for anything. 
I reach for anything. I don't identify with anybody specialized. You specialize, that's fine. There's stories in the book with that. I'm a pig. I do it all. I reach for anything. I will. I know. I stick it in me and blam, and it don't make no difference. I never ask what it is or how it's going to make me react. I did it. People said, didn't you get scared when you got the needle? No, my uncle was a doctor, and he was hitting me with a needle when I was three. Never was afraid of that. And I'm standing in that bathroom, and that little girl's ten years old, and she ain't afraid of that environment either. She's not afraid of that. And I looked in that mirror, and there's a reflection in that mirror through a hole in the door in that bathroom where I stuck my fist or my head or foot or whatever. And that little girl's looking through that door. And just for a second, just that long, just a heartbeat, I looked and I saw her in the eyes. Our eyes met in that mirror, the reflection. And she didn't say, Daddy, what are you doing? Please come play with me. She's looking through there like a wounded animal, looking out from behind a bush. And I turned back around and did what I had to do, turned back around and had to have find a peppermint snops there. And I picked that up and I looked in that mirror. If I ever uttered a prayer before, up to that minute. There's a prayer inside of me that says, God, let it work. Let it work. The saddest thing, the most frightening moment of my life, when I'm standing there looking in that mirror and it don't work. It don't work no more. And it don't work no more and it ain't worked no more for a long time. And standing there looking in that mirror and it ain't working. There's some kind of screaming inside of me. There's some kind of hell comes boiling up inside of me, some kind of rage, some kind of motion fueled by fear. What am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? It don't make any difference if I got more stuff, more to drink. What am I going to do now? Don't you understand? What I'm looking at is me. The sum total of me. And I am what I know I am. There's no more feelings of that reflection when that little girl, I look back and she's gone. There's no shame. People in some of these other programs want to get into shame. Anybody that wants to talk about shame ain't drank past that line. That's right. I mean, I know contempt. I saw the look of contempt many times in people around me. I saw the look of contempt in the eyes of people that we cut our wrists and tied them together. We were blood broke. You know, I saw the look of contempt in their eyes at me. I don't know, shame. Shame's long gone. Those kind of emotions, those kind of feelings, and that kind of way of life, they're gone. You know, there is some place you can go and live beyond hate. There is a space and time. If you are affected by the disease of alcoholism, Affected by it. And that lady sitting in the front row up here, we've been together 32 years. We've been married over 30. And that little girl living in that house, she's affected by the disease of alcoholism. There was no more emotions of shame and embarrassment. That had long gone. When I'm down there in that house and I got my hands around Sue's throat and I'm choking her to death and her eyes about to pop out and that little... You know, ten and a half year old girl runs down the street to somebody's house over on the other side of the street and runs up there and runs through the front door and asks the lady in the house to call the police because her daddy's killing her mom. My daughter wasn't ashamed. <laughs> she wasn't ashamed of that. She didn't look at those people and feel the embarrassment. Stone cold sober, she didn't, she wasn't embarrassed of what's going on in our house. She was desperate. She was desperate. 
It's survival time. Long gone had there been shame and embarrassment. Long gone. It was a way of life. It's a way of life where you can live, where there are no emotions of happiness. There's no emotions of joy. There's emo- no longer do you wonder if it's good now. When is the next shoe going to drop? Hey, you know it's going to turn to pucky soon. You know it. Because it goes hand in hand. The roller coaster is just this way. You know if it goes up, it's going to come down. And you know one thing for sure. If it's down pretty soon, it's going to go up. Because that's just a way of life. It's a way of life. And the insanity in that way of life is day in and day out. I didn't live that way one day or a week. I lived that way for years. It became so natural to me that it was just as sure as breathing in, breathing out. I'd be loaded today if it were that way. But what happened to me is that the awareness of what's going on became apparent to me. I think the bottom of... If there's any bottom, and you know, in a 12 and 12, in the next last paragraph of the first step, it says an alcoholic must hit a bottom. They must hit a bottom, which is, for me, a place beyond where I can go before I'm willing to do what's necessary to do be done in the next 11 steps because of what it asks of us to do in the next 11 steps is beyond anything that any drinking drunk could ever think about doing. It's beyond my comprehension. And I had to hit some kind of a bottom. Some kind of a bottom. Beyond degradation. To the gates of insanity and the doors of hell. You see, as a friend of mine says, I've been to hell. I've been there. I took up residency. Lived there. I'm out today on my green card. (laughs) Ain't afraid of going to hell. Been there. Love it. Comfortable there. Stayed there long enough to be comfortable. Stayed there long enough to make the people who loved me comfortable within that. People used to say to Sue, why did you stay there? Anybody with asked that question has not thoroughly looked at the second step. Alan on her ad. Because the insanity becomes a way of life. It becomes comfortable. And, uh, and we lived there in that hell. We lived there until there was no one but us. I ran out of friends. I, I ran out of drinking friends. I ran out of everybody. Matter of fact, I ran out of friends and enemies at the same time. I did. There was two different groups of people who had a contract on my life when I sobered up and, and they pulled it because the way I was living was worse than anything they could think of doing. They told me that later. I went to try to straighten it up and they said, nah, hey, we backed off that deal because the way you was killing yourself was much more severe than anything we could think of. And that's true. And even they knew that. You know, even they knew that. And I am so grateful because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was there then and it's there today. And there's people in it who love it, people who live it in spite of it. And uh, I'm grateful that the seed had been planted. Sue had tried to take me to Alcoholics Anonymous. She said I was an alcoholic. I agreed I was an alcoholic. I, I just couldn't grasp it at that time. May 11, 1976, a little gray-headed man came to my house, and he introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I won't say that I hadn't been introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll tell you this. If I'd been introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd never tried it. I'd never applied it. I went there for all the wrong reasons. On May 11, 1976, a little gray-headed man came to my house, and he introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Beautiful little man. I call him every Tuesday. He's still alive, still sober, and a lovely, beautiful little man. He's just as enthused about AA today as he was then. 
And he came to the front door of my house, and I stuck a gun in his face. And uh, he did something he's never done before since. He took a gun out of a crazy man's hand. <laughs> and he threw it over in the couch, and he said, you want to stay sober, come go with me. And I said, if you take me to nut ward, I'm, I've been to them nut wards. I'm tired of going to them nut wards. I've been, you know, been through the whole deal. And he said, no, I'm not going to take you to nut ward. I'm going to take you to AA. And he said, I'll guarantee you two things. And I love the old timers that know how to set the hook, man. They know how to set the hook. They can tell when you're ready. And he said to me, he said, you don't ever have to take a drink again as long as you live. You don't want to. I said, I can't possibly conceive how you could do that. And he knew that. He looked at me whenever he said that, and he knew what my immediate thought was. And then he set the hook. God, I love it. He said, I'll guarantee you something else. You don't ever have to be lonely again as long as you live, if you don't want to. God, I knew that loneliness. There is a feeling of loneliness that when you stand there and you take that drink and it don't work anymore. You wait for that thing to go down there around your toenails and curl up and come back and look the world in the eye and say, I don't care. And when it don't happen, there is an overwhelming rush. So when that stuff quits working, there is an overwhelming rush for my kind of an alcoholic, a fear and a sudden feeling of loneliness that comes back and lays my ears back against my head. God, what am I going to do now? And he set the hook, man. He'd been there. He knew that feeling. And when he set that hook on me that morning, I fought him like a puppy dog. I fought him like a puppy dog. And I've been following him around ever since. I know that you know, I had no idea that, that was going to be my last drink. I had no idea. I tried to, you know, if I would have picked my last drunk, it would have been some significant day, you know. I, I did get close to Mother's Day, and Sue says, you tried every way you could to screw it up for me. Now your sobriety date's close to Mother's Day, see. But I didn't know what was going to happen, and this guy took me, and he put me in there with a bunch of other drunks. There was a bunch of other drunks. There was 39 of us in this, this old, they started, a, I guess you call it a detox, and, and uh, he, little Jack took me over to this hospital. They had a hospital two-week program, and to show you how God works in my life, they had a two-week program over there that they just started in this hospital, and they took me over there, and they'd only, they were only dealing with alcoholics. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's their staff. Their counselors only dealing with alcoholics, and 15 years ago, there was, you know, narcotics was a problem, this and that and the other. And, and we went over there, and I had a little problem with blood running down my arm, so they didn't really want to deal with me. I mean, I'm drunk. I've been drunk. But, you know, I, there was obviously grave emotional problems and other things. that I, And so they said no. And Jack didn't care. I mean, he didn't care. He, he just, you know, he'd seen me around in and out. And so he took me over and put me in this other hospital kind of a program thing. And, and uh, a man who, a uh, story in a big book about alcoholics and not, Dr. Paul Oliger, Paul O., had just started that, that detox. Him and Dr. Zuska, uh, who started, Dr. Zuska started the naval program in Long Beach. And he got Dr. Paul over there and they'd started this, uh, this place to, to, uh, treat people like me. Because Paul identified with that. And they put me in there with 39 other people. And, uh, I mean, they were, they were wrung out bunch, I'll guarantee you. You know, you couldn't tell whether they was walking or riding a bicycle. I'm not. I'd, I'd go down the hall, take three steps and laugh, and take three steps and cry. I mean, emotions were just, I, I felt safe to be in there, for God's sakes, man, because where I come from, it was just insane. But, but I, you know, I just cycling through all these emotions, and they put me in a room with a 325-pound crane operator. All he wanted to do was sober up long enough to work 30 more days, and then he'd retire. That's all. And then he was going to drink himself to death, and he told me that. 
And, uh, you know, they took us in there. Well, they brought some psychiatrist in there after I was sober a few days. They took all my clothes off and gave me one of them green robes, you know, that's bare in the back, set me down around there and dragging me around. Everybody was just, you know, sick, sick, sick. And they, they had me act out some kind of a bar scene. They was going to do a little gestalt therapy or something in there. And, and so they, I mean, they didn't know what they was doing. And, and they had this 325 pound crane operator was going to, was going to act like we was going to have, he was going to agitate me in the bar. Now, I'd been, I'd had a long run of speed and alcohol prior to coming. I weighed soaking wet about 180 pounds. And, uh, and that morning when they did a little gestalt therapy with me, I, I turned that 325 pound crane operator into a crying child. And they said I could no longer play their little game. That I just had to go to AA meetings. But that was the only thing that would work for me. <laughs> and I was tickled to death, I'll guarantee you. And, uh, and they brought people from Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the H&I program, the people who are involved in that service. I love H&I work. I do a lot of it myself. Sue and I both are very involved in H&I work, going to prisons and, and hospitals. And they brought a bunch of people from H&I into this hospital where we were and uh, panels, and they talked to us about Alcoholics Anonymous. We just a bunch of drunks in there. They didn't have anything else that wasn't working, so they just had AA. And they brought a bunch of guys in there, and they were talking to me about Alcoholics Anonymous. I was around there, been, it was a 30-some-day program, I guess, and I'd been there about 20 days, and they brought this little guy in there. He had a whole bunch of people with him, and, and uh, he was just buzzing around everywhere, and, and uh, his name was Ron, and they called him Rotten Ron. And he come in there, and he's talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. He looked me right in the eye, and he said, you an alcoholic? And I said, yeah, guess so. Now, beats the heck out of what they're calling me out on the street, I'll tell you that. And uh, he said... Uh, you believe in God? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm Southern Baptist. I've been, you know, sprayed, sprinkled, dipped, you know. I'm, <laughs> matter of fact, I, I'm a buzzard Baptist. The only time I went to church is there's something to eat or something dead, you know. <laughs> First thing, had you been in there a while, he said to me, he said, I'm your sponsor. I said, how did you figure that out? And he said, well, we drew straws and I lost. <laughs> said, you're the sickest sucker in here, you know. And I said, yeah. I said, what's the sponsor? I said, is that a friend? And he said, no, if you want a friend, get a dog. <laughs> Turn tape to side two. My dog hated me, man. I had a 125-pound German Shepherd dog that hated me. <laughs> and uh, so I'll come and get you, take you to meetings and this and that and the other, and I'll explain it, you know, this deal to you. And so, you know, uh, I just... Stayed there. On our last day, they, they was going to let all of us out, and so they took us in a room and made a big circle. All 39 of us sat around in this circle, you know, and they, I don't know why, just the way God works in my life, they started right on my left. And uh, we all went around and kind of took everybody's inventory. And uh, they started right on my left, and everybody, all 38 of them people said I wasn't going to stay sober. You know, they can oh, I think she's wonderful, she's found God, she's going to make it, and I think he's great, he's going back to his family, and drum's going to drink. Just as soon as he hits the street. All 38 of those people said I was going to get loaded as soon as I hit the street. So convincing that when it came my turn and I was the last one, I said, I'll probably drink when I leave here. And I thought, God! I almost voted to get with them, you know? <laughs> and I immediately retaliated and said, hell with you, I'm going to be the only one that's sober. And you know what? I am. I am. And if you're new or relatively new, I can tell you from that, you can stay sober on a resentment. 
<laughs> Matter of fact, it don't hurt to get a little mad now and then. You can stay sober in spite of yourself if you want to stay sober. And, uh, and I am so grateful that the people of Alcoholics Anonymous introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous because that's the foundation I stand on today. They took me home and they told me that I was going to have to go to meetings every day as long as I drank. And I drank for over 20 years, so they said I'd have to go to a meeting every day for at least 22 years before I could take a night off and go to a movie. They told me I was going to have to write this inventory and I was going to have to share it. They told me I was going to have to make these amends, all those things. And Ron came and got me, took me over to the house, let me out in the front door. I went up and beat on the front door. And my wife came to the front door and I said, i got to go to meeting every day for the rest of my life. What are you going to do? <laughs> she just looked at me and said, Oh, I've been going to Al-Anon. The kids been going to Alley-Teen. The dog's been going to Alley-Dog. And the cat's been going to Alley-Cat. So what, dummy? You know. I don't know what to say, so I went in, waited. My sponsor came and got me and started taking me to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I didn't know what... I, when I sobered up, I had long hair, long beard. I hadn't bathed in a long time. I had a pickup truck, went down the road crooked, and a Harley Davidson wouldn't start. You know, I mean, I, I had drank till I achieved pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization, bought myself a bag of dope and a Harley Davidson, and became a legend in my own mind is what I had done. And I just, I was just hopeless and helpless, And I, but I had all this anger. It didn't go away. I had all this insane energy. And... And I was just going down the road with him, and he'd always get all these newcomers, and he had a van, and we'd load them all in a van, and you know, we'd go to meetings, set meetings with Alcoholics Anonymous. I was just stark raving mad. I didn't understand what took me a lot of men's stags because they talked my native tongue, profanity. And uh, they let me run that out. They let me rain my wrath on them. And they, 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 you know, they would just talk sick stuff, and I didn't quit carrying guns because I sobered up. I didn't, I mean, it was a way of life for me. I was so paranoid, sometimes I'd go to meetings where I, you know, was, he was taking me. I had so many guns on me. If he'd have bumped into me, there'd have been a mushroom cloud. You know, I mean, it was just, one cop gave me a grenade, a dummy grenade, and he said, here, when it gets so bad, stick that grenade in your mouth and pull the pin. And, uh, or work the steps. <laughs> you, know. you know, they always gave me an alternative. I went in a meeting one night, sat down, some guy's sober 20-some years, and he's sitting there, and he's serene, and he, I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing fine. My house is in order. I'm not afraid of dying. And I pulled a gun out of my boot, stuck it under his chin, and I said, then why are you sweating? <laughs> that old fool pushed the gun over to the side, and he said, let me tell you something, drum. You're welcome in here in AA, but your gun ain't. Now go put that in the car. I couldn't intimidate him. And, uh, and, and for that, I loved him. I'm so grateful that there's people that, you know, love this program and they understand my kind of a drunk. And, uh, and these people would take me around with them all the time. I, you know, they told me you gotta clean up, shape up. I didn't know what to do. I, I really didn't. I, I, I just fake it until you can make it. I tried to do an inventory. I did an immoral inventory. I did a fearful inventory. I'd write all this stuff down and try to impress you, you know, and I just, I, I, I didn't understand what was going on. You know, I, I said, I can't do that fifth step because I don't trust anybody. I come to understand today the reason is because I'm not trustworthy. Uh, couldn't trust anybody because I wasn't trustworthy. And, uh, and and yet they let me, you know, rain my wrath on them. They allowed for me, you know, to, to, to share little by little. And they, they whenever I seemed to be willing, they'd shove a piece of paper and a pencil in front of me. And Sue's going to all these Al-Anon meetings and Simone's going to all the Alateen meetings. And I'm just running around crazy. I got all these problems. I owe all these people money. I'm just, I'd sit in meetings and people talk about great things happening. And man, I had problems. You know, the book said waves of the past will roll over you when you get here. I had big waves following me when I got here. I had people who were going to kill me if I didn't pay them money. I was not worried about my creditors. And, uh, and I could not conceive how you're going to pay this much money back working 
You can't possibly pay the kind of money back I got to do working. <laughs> you have to steal. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's the way I rationalize things. I didn't know what to do, and I just fake it. I just fake it. There's my sponsor had all these goofs running around. You know, he was all different jobs, and one guy was a clothing salesman, so he, he took me over here and he said, "We're going to change your clothes, man. You got to, you got to get, you know, different image here. Clean up, shape up, and show up." And took me down, got my hair trimmed and my beard trimmed. This guy sold me a suit, man, pinstripe suit, and you know, nice vest. And he explained to me after you're sober a little while, you know, you wear underwear. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I ain't too good at laundry. And it's all, well, we'll give you some green ones and blue ones and some, you know, colored underwear so you can just flip them inside out and get a lot of mileage out of them. You know? <laughs> I mean, they explained that to me. I didn't understand that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, that's a good deal. Give me a dozen. You know I mean? <laughs> I mean? I used to wear them things as long as I could, then throw them away and go buy other ones. I didn't. Wars? What do you mean? And... Uh, you know, and, and I understood that. And they got me a tie, you know, reversible tie. Said you go after out after meetings, you know, while you spill chili on it and all that stuff. Why well, this? You can turn it around, and wear it tomorrow. You know? <laughs> and uh, explained all that. And another guy, you know, this guy's selling cars. He give me a heck of a deal, nothing down, and give me a year to make my first payment. And uh, big, big Mark Four Lincoln, big long make man, love that Lincoln. Had hood ornament way out there. <laughs> and uh, call it my big AA car. My sponsor said it was an extension of my ego, but I didn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and I put on that suit and go down there at the meeting hall on Saturday morning and stand down there, you know, with my grenade in my hand and the Lincoln parked right out front, giving newcomers hope, you know, <laughs> moving right along in AA. <laughs> I'd go home and I'd tell Sue, I'd say, why do all the sick ones want to talk to me? <laughs> I was waiting for maybe a doctor, a lawyer, a parole officer to come in and I'd be his sponsor. You know? <laughs> I'd have all these snaggletooths wanting to talk to me, you know, all the weirdos, crazy. Look into my eyes. <laughs> what do you do with this anger? I don't know. Put this grenade in your mouth and pull a pin. You know? <laughs> Ain't nothing worse than having it and not knowing what to do with it. That's the worst part. And uh, I stand there one morning, and I look around, my sponsor made me stand over in one corner, and he stood in the other. He wouldn't stand next to me. <laughs> and newcomers would come in, he'd snag them and talk to them and point at me. I asked one of them new guys one time, I said, what did my sponsor say about me? He said, your sponsor said you're as well as you're ever going to be. <laughs> and if I go back out and drink, I could end up like you. <laughs> I stand in there one day, and i just crazy. Saturday morning is just absolutely insane to me. You ever wonder why a newcomer is crazy whenever they get to a meeting on Saturday morning? I would wake up. Now, the book says some of us wake up. We were drunk the night before, so drunk that it seemed like we would pass out and sleep forever. And then we wake up the next morning and search madly for another drink. That's the way it was I sober up. I'd wake up, and I would search madly for something. And I'd think, i got to get to a meeting. And I'd run in, and I'd think, well... Who am I today? And I look in the mirror and I think, well, I'm from Texas. I'll be a cowboy. I go put my Levi's boots on, my cowboy hat, pull it down, get in the mirror. You know, look in there and say, shit, howdy. That's it. So we'd go right to the phone, call her sponsor. Be over there talking to her sponsor. And I'd go out and kiss her goodbye, go out and get my old pickup, fired up, drive her down the street, hit a light down there. I look in the mirror and I think, no, I don't think I'm a cowboy. Turn around, go back home, and I get in there and think, well, 
I'm a biker. I go and put my leathers on, my bandana on, you know, I get in the mirror, you know, I think, I'm fire that Harley Davidson up and drive it right up <laughs> Go out and kiss you goodbye, go out and fire that Harley up in the garage, rib it up so the neighbors will be all mad, you know. <laughs> Run her down the street, hit one of them lights, the mirror sitting there shaking, I look at it, I say, no, I feel like a marshmallow. <laughs> Turn around and run her back, put in the garage, go in there, run in there. <clears throat> Put on my three-piece suit, get the dictionary out, look up some of them $75 words so I could be smart when I got to the meeting, you know. Run out, kiss her goodbye, go out and get in the big Lincoln, drive her down the street, hit the light. Hell, I forgot them words I was going to say in the meeting. I couldn't remember them long words. I'd turn around, take it back, run in there, take off my suit, put on my jogging suit and run to the meeting. <laughs> one morning, my wife's sponsor said, how many people live in that house? <laughs> so this one alcoholic don't know who in the hell he is today. <laughs> Now, that's why newcomers are tired when they get to a meeting. <laughs> Don't change after you've been here a while either. <laughs> I got her down to about two. <laughs> I stand there one morning and I had my suit on and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I just, I cheat. And I looked around, a weirdo standing next to me, the weirdest looking guy you ever seen. He had hair sticking out everywhere. He had one of them little welder's hat with strawberries and cherries on it. You know, I'd seen, seen that dude in the meeting the night before. And he's treasure the meeting, asked for a treasure report, and he stood up and said, I stole the money and I'm not paying it back. <laughs> and they said, you know what? They said, you gotta keep doing it till you get it right. Said, Man, that sounds like some of my business partners, you know. I mean I couldn't understand. And and I looked at this guy and I said, What do you want? Why don't you comb your hair? He said, I did. <laughs> Hell you did. So what do you want? And he said, Will you be my sponsor? Said, oh man, I can't even take care of myself. How can I help you? But I give him the grenade. I said, "Here, hold this." You know. <laughs> I went over to my sponsor and I said, "See how weird over there?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "He just asked me to be his sponsor." My sponsor said, "The dumbest thing I've heard." He said, "Yeah, I know. I sent him over there." <laughs> you go back over there and tell him you'll be his sponsor and do exactly as he said. <laughs> that don't make sense to me today. I never argued with my sponsor. I said, okay. And I went back with that weirdo. I said, my sponsor says i got to be your sponsor. What do you want to do? He said, I want to go for a ride in your Lincoln. <laughs> hey, stupid. And I said, well, you go out that door, and I'll go out this door, and I'll meet you out. And he said, nope, I want to go with you. And he grabbed me by the arm, and we'd start going across the room. And I said, man. There's two guys I know leaning up against the door jam over there where we're going out. And I said, oh. And we get over there, and this weirdo says, that's my new sponsor. <laughs> Man, don't tell people I'm your sponsor. And them two guys look at us and just smile and say, Boy, it's going to be fun to watch you two grow. <laughs> and I got that weirdo in that car and he started talking just as soon as we hit the ignition, man. He started talking sick stuff coming out of his mouth. Sick stuff. Fifteen minutes down the road, he's rattling that stuff off and then he'd say, You ever do anything like that? Yeah, I did some stuff like that. Next thing you know, I'm telling you some of my sick stuff. And he said... Man, you're the sickest sucker I know. We need to go to a meeting. So we are. So we need to work the steps. We are. I'd take him home. He'd just go in the house. I'd say, I'll come back and get you later. We'll go to a meeting. I'd come back. And it's like he stood inside the door. Didn't I? I said, why don't you comb your hair? He said, I did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> he'd start talking that sick stuff. And then pretty soon he'd say that stupid thing. You ever do anything like that? Said, yeah. A couple of times I kind of had to lie to him, you know. You can't let him one-up you. <laughs> he told me later, he says, I know some of that stuff you told me was a lie because it's physically impossible to do it. I went home and tried it. 
I just take that guy to me and we talk and talk and talk. One time we were sitting outside and we'd been to hear Chuck Chamberlain, spiritual giant, sat right on the front row. And Chuck was just a marvel. He just, he just reeked with spirituality, the aura about him. And I got weirdo sitting on the front row and we're hearing it, man. I'm getting it all. It's way over my head, but I'm getting it all. And, uh, after the meeting, I'm trying to explain it to this guy. You know, that's why they have speakers. So you can bring newcomers, and then later you can explain to them what the speaker said. Add a little of your stuff to it. Yeah. <laughs> Fill in the blank spot. And I got this guy on the Lincoln, and I'm explaining to him what it was Chuck said about God. And he can't get it. He went and got the Bible, and then he got a book that interprets the Bible, and he's all messed up. And he's telling me, he said, we need a miracle. <laughs> what are you talking about? And he said, I mean like a burning bush or a parting of the water or something like that. I'm thinking if I had some lighter fluid, I could torch a hedge over there. <laughs> Best I could come up with, I had an old 45 in the glove box. I reached in, pulled that old 45 out, run around in the chamber, pulled it upside his head, shoved real hard, and I said, I'm going to count to ten and you pray. If this gun does not go off when I get to ten, you have done step three. I counted ten, laid the old hammer down, throwed her back in there. He jumped out of that Lincoln, ran around outside, crazy as a loon, man. Run around that Lincoln out there, run back in that meeting hall where my sponsor was and showed him that ring on the side of his head. Went to barrel that 45 and told my sponsor, rat spinked on me and told my sponsor, I put a 45 to his head and make him do step three. My sponsor says, yeah, I know, ain't he spiritual? <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but we're both still sober. <laughs> And some of us just don't hear it any other way. <laughs> and, you know, that guy ended up coming to my house, and, and, he, and he sat at my kitchen table, and he told me everything there was to know about him. And, uh, and I told him everything there was to know about me, bar none. And he couldn't read or write. And he sat there, and he uh, said, you got to write it and put it on paper. And, and I said, that's right. And he said, well, you write, and if I tell you. And I said, yeah, and I started writing. And he started telling me that stuff. After he went a little while, he said, that stupid thing again. He said, you ever do anything like that? <laughs> and uh, and I walked through that arc that it talks about. And I, I started telling some of my stuff. And, uh, and it dawned on me there's a couple of things I forgot to tell my sponsor when I did my fifth step. You know, kind of a more will be revealed. I looked around. I knew he couldn't read and God was in the room. So I just put some of my stuff in his. You know, <laughs> What it's all about, get it out. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and you see what I come to understand is sitting at that kitchen table that day that guy and I shared everything for the first time in my entire life I told another human being another human being everything there was to know about me bar none and there was no fear there was no fear there was no apprehension it flowed and that's exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous is if you're an Alcoholics Anonymous you're looking for all these things don't look for something that ain't here man don't look for something that ain't here this is a fantastic thing this weekend, and the energy is fantastic. We come here and we get together, and there's a lot of energy, and there's a lot of enthusiasm. But if you don't plug into that, and you don't get it next Wednesday night, 2 o'clock in the morning, you wake up and the hounds of death have got you by the throat, you better have something to reach and pull from. But Alcoholics Anonymous is one drunk talking to another drunk. The language of the heart. To be able to see the difference between fear and joy. I was sober a long time before I could understand the difference between fear and joy. To me, they look like a double-barrel shotgun. And I didn't know which one was going to go off next. And little by little, by the fact that I've come around here and I've shared my experience, strength, and hope with no conditions. You see, I'm as sober as I am secret. I have no secrets in my life today. None. 
people talk about gossip around here. You got no secrets. There is no gossip. That's right. Because that's gossip. If you got no secrets, there is no gossip. I'm sober as I am secret. See, I understand that today. I understand that. I got no fears from those kind of things. There's nothing going on in my life today that can hurt me. Like that. There's nothing going on in my life today that can, you know, take me back to those negative emotions if I don't want them to. And if I'm sitting talking to that newcomer, you know, I'm, I'm going through those steps again and I'm, it's like taking a shower from the inside out. What that's done for me in my life today is it's changed my values. It's changed my values and that's an ongoing thing. And that's what I was the most afraid of. If you take those facades and those, you know, those defense mechanisms away from me, who will I be? What will be left? Because truly I'm a scared little boy that just grew up to be a scared little boy. And now I've come to a way of life where I can't strike out with that violence anymore. That physical violence won't work. I've had to have abstinence from that since I came here on May 11, 1976. Which means that I've got to change and I'm so afraid of change, don't you understand? And yet, little by little, I've stayed here long enough that what I've changed into is something that's beyond my wildest drunken dream. That I can stand in a courtroom with a guy six foot four, stand there and hold his hand, and he's 36 days sober, and he's standing there, and his wife and his four kids are standing over there, and her lawyer and that judge are telling us what kind of a man he is and what kind of a husband he is not. And standing there, stole cold sober, I'm holding his hand, and I understand what he's listening to, because I've listened to that. And now because of this program and now because of sobriety, I do know shame and I do know embarrassment and I do know the feelings of degradation because I've had to walk back through those in order to understand what it was that I went through to start with. I've had to walk back through every one of those things in my life in order to come back to have the feelings of a human being in order to have compassion for you. To understand the embarrassment and the shame that I might cause you as a result of that ten step and the amend steps that I've had to take. What that gave me was a set of spiritual muscles to stand in that courtroom and hold a guy six foot four. A guy that beat the hell out of six Long Beach policemen before they got him down. And he's standing there in that courtroom that day and I'm his sponsor. And I'm holding his hand and I'm standing there with him while his wife and them kids. And I can see that feeling in them. And I can see the disease of alcoholism. They don't want no part of it. They don't want any of his recovery. And they're going their own way. And I'm standing there that day in that courtroom and they're telling him about him. They're doing one of them legal fifth steps that you hear in them courtrooms. And he's standing there biting a hole in his tongue to keep from crying. And I walk out in that hall after that deal's over and I stand there with him. And I put my arms around him. I put my arms around him and I love him like a small child that he is. I don't know where that come from. Honest to God, I don't know where those feelings come from. When it first happened to me, it scared me to death. It honestly scared me to death. My wife said, man, you ain't going to wuss out on me, are you? You know? (laughs) No, there's feelings happening in my life today, emotions happening in me that I don't know where it come from. I don't know how I can love another human being that much. I don't know how I can care for another human being and have compassion for them only. But the thing I've come to understand, you see, that's the language of the heart. That's one drunk holding another drunk when he can't stand on his own. That's not a weakness, that's a strength. Because of the simple fact that I've come to this program and I've come to understand my weaknesses by your revealing them to me and your peer pressure and your insistence that I give up these facades and give up this way of life that I come from and change it for a way of life that's spiritual, spiritual in nature. But the simplicity of that is very simple. One thing, just be a human being. Just be a human being. Not the immortal man, just a human being. Allow yourself to have these feelings and emotions. Allow yourself to go with the deal. And that's the excitement about these kind of things. If you sit in this room today... As into yourself as you might be, you cannot deny the fact that we stood here, we stand here, as I do, 
And you sit there in that audience and you laugh with me. You can laugh at me. I don't care. Laughter is the healing medicine of the heart and the soul. And we can come to a place like this and we can laugh and we can cry and we can kiss each other goodbye. And we can go out there in that way of life and we can live a life. And that's Alcoholics Anonymous. That's a way of life that I've come to understand that returned me to some sanity. To understand that you know you have feelings and emotions and to care for them. It taught me a set of values that I know nothing about. They told me it's the actions that you take that change the thinking. You know, it dawned on me not too long ago, Sue and I have been together for 32 years, but we've been married for 30. And I haven't cheated on her in over 15 years. Since I've been sober, I haven't cheated on that lady. See, that's a value I knew nothing about. That's a loyalty that I knew nothing about. And what that put in that relationship, and I got those values out of the chapter of the family afterwards and those things, and the chapter of the agnostic, what that put in that relationship is trust. Trust. See, that's a value I knew nothing about. There was no loyalty. It was just me. When you're selfish, self-centered, and self-serving, there is nothing to do with trust. And you see, what I come to understand is that when I put that value in that relationship with that lady, when I put that value in the relationship with you, when I put that value in the relationship with the old-timers, what it does for me, it lets me see that I've now come to trust my God. I came here to scoff, and I have stayed to pray. And when I first heard that, I thought, man, you've got no idea where I come from. And yet I know today, those values, by just taking those actions, has allowed me to be me. That I care for someone. That I have compassion for someone. That I genuinely have learned to love. You see, I knew no value of love. I knew that if you said you loved me, it just meant I was next, man. And I know what love is today. Love is transparency. Love is the fact that I have no secrets, that I can stand here in the sum total of me, man. I'll let you see in. And yet the greatest value of that love is what that gives me is the ability to see you. To see you. When I came here, I was like looking through a straw. Now I can see. Now I can believe. And what that's given me is a great, great emotion of love is freedom. And I thought freedom's doing what you want to do anytime you want to do it. I thought, man, if I got you laying face down on the floor and there's a 38 at the back of your head and I'm taking your billfold, I got you. I don't got you. You got me. Freedom's having the strength to do what's necessary to be done when called upon by your fellow man or your God, not necessarily in that order. That's freedom. Freedom. I woke up this morning, you know, since I left California, I've seen them all. I've been with them. I'm with you. I've seen the tall ones, the short ones, the rich ones, and the poor ones, man. And from the second I woke up this morning to this heartbeat right now, I haven't seen or thought anybody I'd rather be than me. We talk about a quiet heart in the midst of the storm. There's no greater freedom than acceptance of oneself. Who you are, why you are, how you are, and where you are. Walk around out there in the sunlight of the Spirit. Man, what that gives me is a strength, a dignity. Sometimes it comes across as arrogance, but people don't understand. They don't. Because inside of that is a feeling of self-worth. Sure, sometimes the ego gets out of whack. The ego will in the big book and the other books around here. A comes of age. Dr. Tebow talks about the alcoholic ego will revive itself irregardless of the length of sobriety. When I came here, I had zero self-worth. Peel zero. 
And every day that I've stayed here, you've given me commitments. You've given me commitments in service. You've given me things to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. You told me to get action is a magic word. And in those actions that I've taken, sure, the ego has revived itself up. But as the ego revives itself, the, the self-worth creeps up a little bit. Every time I did something, when I picked up a chair, moved the cup, cleaned the ashtray, was the secretary of the meeting, was served in the conventions, worked in the H&I, and service that we do as sharing as we do here, the speakers, it's a form of service that we do here. And every time the old timers have had the ability to flick my ego down just like the top off of a sore, man. They come around and flick it off, man, just like a scab. They do that. And that destroys the ego. But my self-worth has never gone back to that point that I came in here with. That in itself is as spiritual as any value I've ever known. Because I've stayed here and I stayed sober one day at a time. You've given me enough self-worth to be me. Acceptance of myself. One I always wanted to be, just me. I don't have to compete. I don't have to outthink, outperform, or outmaneuver anybody, man. I don't want to. Or sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. But because of you, I don't have to. When I wake up in the morning and I'm me, and I understand, and I set my time, and I do my prayer and my meditation, I say, God, very simply, I have a simple prayer. God, you better take care of me because I'm going to be real busy. And I hit the deck. And at the end of that day, I come home and I put my head on that pillow. And I say, thank you, God, for another sober day of myself. By myself, I'm nothing. Because of you, i become what I always wanted to be. Just me. All my life, I wanted to be the meanest man on the face of the earth. I did. I wanted to push you away. I wanted to keep that screen, that facade around so you didn't get in and find out my feelings and my weaknesses. I tried every way. I had the, had the costumes. I had all the things around me to, to be the meanest man on the face of the earth. So that I could have that anger and that rage that I have no emotions. I said with an old man one day and we was talking about who is the meanest man on the face of the earth? You want to know what he looks like? I'm him. It's me. Because you know who he is? He's that simple little guy that woke up this morning. Look in the mirror. There's somebody looking back. He can go in there and take a shower and put a clean set of clothes on. And he can go in and put his arms around his lady that he loves and say, baby, I love you. He can walk across that room and you don't have to kick the dog or the cat. He can go out there and get in that car and he can drive down the street and go to that job. Don't have to flip the crosswalk lady off. He can go down there and work in that job and have a boss. A boss. Somebody knows nothing and has a position. <laughs> and you don't have to tell him how to do it. You don't have to tell him how to do it. You just sit there and you do your job. You got a place and you clock in and clock out. At the end of the day or the end of the week, they give you that little paycheck and take it home. You pay your bill. See, that's me. That's who I am today. That's simple. That vulnerable. That's me. It's the strongest I ever wanted to be. See, it don't take much. It just takes everything you got. And then some. Then some. See, any puke can walk out of that door and go out there and drink. And I won't look down on you because that's a natural state. It takes guts to stay in here and stay sober. It takes some kind of energy inside. You better believe it. It takes some kind of drive to stay here and say, I'll do it. And I'll do it someone else's way. Because my way don't cut it no more. It takes guts to do that. That's what I always wanted to be. And you gave me that. Just me. God bless you. Thank you.